Welcome to Best Served, a podcast recognizing unsung hospitality heroes. Join Chef Jensen Cummings as he chops it up with industry leaders about the humans who've impacted their lives and careers. From childhood guides, to ass-kicking mentors, to the team members in the trenches that make it all happen. Help us celebrate these rock stars by sharing our show and nominating your own unsung hospitality heroes. Connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Now here is your host. What's up, everybody? Jensen Cummings here. Thank you for tuning in. Today you're going to listen to an episode with Eric Rivera, who is the chef owner of a dough in Seattle, Washington. Unbelievable energy in this conversation. This guy is a lightning rod to be sure. A lot of really great ideas about the way the industry is and what's possible coming forward. Talked about his Puerto Rican family cooking with his grandfather. And we get to talk about his time working with Grant Ackett's at Alinea. We talk cookbooks. Take a listen. We're born in Olympia, Washington, Puerto Rican family. I'm very, very fascinated with that. Just what it means as I think Puerto Rican food now is having a little bit of momentum and things, but it's always been deep seated in you. And it's been, a, yeah. I'm sure, great to see it start, but it's, it's barely, barely starting. So take us back and think about a little bit of raising a Puerto Rican family in the state of Washington. Kind of what was that like? What does that mean to you? Um, it's just, it's very different because um, there's no roots or ties really other than my grandparents moved from Puerto Rico when I was born um, to Washington to like help take care of us. And my parents were both working full time. Um, so when my parents, you know, were at work, like I would help my grandfather cook and he was the, he was the one that would cook all the time. Um, but outside of the household, there wasn't anything Puerto Rican. I mean, it's very, and, you know, Olympia is predominantly white. And, you know, even in Washington, it's predominantly white. But um, so there's no comparison model. There's no reaching out to a community of people. There's, there's nothing, you know. Um, so everything that I saw from Puerto Rican food was from my grandfather and my mom. You know, right. So what was your like, grandfather cooking? Uh, everything, you know, he would cook everything kind of just like, you know, rice and beans as a staple and then chicken dishes and pork dishes. Like there was stuff that had names, but it was more ingredient driven. Um, it wasn't like, Hey, here's a classic Puerto Rican dish unless it was like holiday times. Um, but it was a lot of just inexpensive ingredients, um, used to kind of just make something good. And he would make breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you know, all day long. So, you know, I got an experience to do that. And, he built me like a little stepping stool next to the oven. So if he was wanting me to stir something, you know, like a soup or whatever, like I would do that. Uh, so that was, that was really early on of earliest memories I have was just being like helping him in a kitchen, you know? What was your grandfather's name? Uh, Felix. Felix. Nice. And I'm really interested in that because I'm sure a lot of people listening don't have that experience. As you mentioned, very predominantly white. Washington does have the experience but very, very deep-rooted Latino tradition that a lot of grandparents are really heavily helping to raise yeah. grandchildren because parents are out hustling, working, two yep. jobs, whatever that is. And so the fact that they moved to Olympia, Washington to kind of make that happen, I mean, reflecting back on that now that you're starting to be able to express some of, of that heritage, 
yeah what's that like knowing like that they uprooted a whole life to come and cook puerto rican food with, with yeah. you and everyone else was crushing mcdonald's like it was their job it's it's pretty crazy you know to think about it that way you know obviously they were retired at you know at the time uh, so it's a little bit easier for them to make that move um but they also like grandkids so <laughs> bonus for them um so it was just interesting because there's so many different things that happen culturally you know we like to listen to music that's a little bit louder we're at the dinner table we talk pretty loud uh, and other people see that as like either they're yelling or being aggressive or there's all these like really weird cultural differences even around like christmas time you know um in america it's really quiet it's very like it almost to me it feels like you're mourning something you know and in puerto rican culture it's like a party um and we carry that through like a whole month and it's not just one or two days like we're celebrating everything and having a good time and dancing and it's just, it's so different. Um, when I used to take food from my house for like lunch, like, like my grandparents would make or whatever else, like people would be like, what are you eating? <laughs> you know, uh, what is that? That's weird. You know, that's gross. Uh, it smells different. And I'd be like, well, what are you eating? And, you know, uh, it, my mom assimilated towards it. And, you know, cause I would ask and I'd be like, can I just get like a fucking Lunchable because I'm tired of explaining myself, you know? And that's, it's, that was really early on. I, I remember that vividly, like being in first and second grade going like, can I not just have this stuff to take with me? Can I just like pay for lunch at school if we can do that? Can we just be normal? <laughs> you know, and normal meaning the white culture, you know, just to fit in. Um, because to a certain degree, you're just like, I don't, I'm tired of people talking shit, you know? Ah, man, Eric, I, mourning something. I just had like a visceral reaction to you talking about people mourning their meal it's like eat your vegetables they fuck it they're garbage it's like yeah it's like canned peas or boiled it's brussels gross. sprouts and you're it's like you're right i don't i don't want yeah. to eat my vegetables i just don't I, it's just weird man because it's like even spices and seasonings in puerto rican food it's very different it's heavy-handed you know there's no there's no subtlety in that style of food it's it's like right when you taste it you're like fuck yeah that's awesome and so having to introduce my own self and learn different cultures of food and understand why someone would like a casserole, why somebody would like Midwestern food or why somebody would like these like Christmas classic fucking potato dishes that don't taste like anything. You know, it's like, I, I can sit here and get in arguments with people now about it and go, okay, that's cool. I appreciate that. That's what you do, but here, try this version of your own fucking food. And it's a thousand times better. You know, and that can come from the point of view of me just being a professional cook, but it wasn't that easy when I wasn't a professional cook. <laughs> you know, it's just me being an angry Puerto Rican, right? But I like now, that you got a little bravado about it. Oh, I think totally. it's interesting because now you're like, I fucking told you, you yeah. know, and, and well, you had to go through a process of like this awkward assimilation into yeah. like, like a race to the bottom of the yep. least flavorful, least exciting way to express yourself in food. Right. And to your point. Right. There's a lot of tradition and heritage and I've had really good casseroles and I had garbage where I'm like, there's literally no food in that. It's literally all like yeah, out of a can or a, a jar or, or a whatever. Yep. Yep. So, so, but that being said, there's lots of casseroles that I have are amazing. So, so not to just completely right. diss all no, of them, no, no. but you had to come to a point where you said, now, now is my opportunity for people to go, what's this Puerto Rican food thing? It's like, right. it's, it's my life. That's what right. it is. 
Right, and it's it's and it's very different too. It's like it's not just me saying I'm doing Puerto Rican food. There's very much differences in it. There's different families that do everything. You know, there's different recipes that are out there that <clears throat> are going extinct because people aren't passing them on properly, or nobody's actually giving a shit to go. Oh my God, you know, are there cookbook publishers out there looking for this kind of content? They're not. <laughs> you know, they're not. They're, you know, Puerto Rican food hasn't been highlighted in cookbooks the same way other cultures cuisines have um it's really hard to like sell it to people and have them be excited by it a lot of it isn't pretty it's it's not you know something that you're going to see on a fucking instagram account shot from high down with you know a contrast and brightness filter and people are going to be like oh my god you know it's it's not that it's not that it can be you know if you start putting all these really delicate and awesome garnishes but you can do that with any type of cuisine but it makes it really hard because I, I take the stance of Puerto Rican cuisine, like it's very different and there's a lot of variables in the same way that people will fight me to the death about pizza or hot dogs or burgers. You know, so if like someone's going to get off on saying like, well, Chicago style pizza is the shit, New York style pizza is the shit, blah, 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 blah. You know, I'm taking the same stance with like Puerto Rican food to show people that there's variables in it and it's not just you know, lumped together of all Caribbean cuisine, which is what happens a lot of the time. Yeah. Do you think, so, you know, Mufungo in its classic form is not mm -hmm. that pretty to your point. Do you think no. you, you have a responsibility somewhat to take your uh, technique and the level of, of uh, refinement maybe is yeah. the best word for it, that you can take these ingredients and pass on these flavors and the heritage through a medium that is, I don't know, more on par with what people expect of a high level of cuisine? Do you sometimes. find yourself like I mean, taking on that challenge? Yeah. Or do you I mean, say, fuck, I don't want to have to do that? No, sometimes. I mean, there's, there's times in my like tasting menus and, and like we do Puerto Rican food tasting menu. You can get three, five or seven courses from it. There's some times where I'll, you know, have my little, I feel super awesome day where I'm like, I'm going to make this look really amazing and i'm gonna throw some caviar on it and it's gonna be a mix, you know that kind of shit but then the majority of the time i'm like no it needs to speak for itself don't dress it up don't make it fancy just make it good and then from there it's the guests can eat it and try it <laughs> and go oh shit this is good you know and and that's fine uh that's that's the reaction i'm looking for it's for them to be surprised by how good it is but then also not judge it by just what it looks like in front of their camera on their phone, you know? Yeah. I like how it's, again, the thesis of the show is like why and who before what and how. And I like that you, you're staying grounded in who you're representing yourself, your yeah. family, your grandfather, clearly. Right. And yeah. why this food is so important and why it's fucking delicious straight up. Yeah. And then I mean, finding a way to like not over manipulate it, but also put it into a form where people go, yeah, yeah I get it. I get it. I mean, you can go to ma any major city, and they probably have at least one or two or three or four or five, six, you know, Puerto Rican restaurants. Seattle doesn't have one, like zero. <laughs> There's no full-time Puerto Rican restaurants. Uh, so when you look at shit like that, and I look, I think about that stuff kind of all the time. I always go, well, why is that the case? I mean, granted from the distance of Puerto Rico to here, it's very far. I mean, it's about as far as you can get in the U S without being considering Alaska um, or Hawaii. Uh, but you know, it's, it's crazy because it, the food is good. So if there's food that just tastes good, a lot of times it can stand on its own and it gets 
marketed and sold to people in a way where they go, oh man, that's that's really fucking awesome. You know, look how long it took for people to actually acknowledge different styles of Mexican cuisine. You know, it took them forever. It, it wasn't just Taco Bell being marketed to them and told. People got tired of that shit and said, this is garbage. What are tacos really about? And so they started to find other styles. They started to find out that, oh my God, there's all these different regions in Mexican cuisine that you can get different style of tacos and different style, you know. And so there's that deep dive hasn't happened yet in Puerto Rican cuisine. You know, a lot of people think that what we're doing is predominantly fried food, really fatty. Um, you know, it's either just going to be pork or it's going to be one other thing. There's not really anything out there that's differentiating itself and showing people, hey, this is actually really fucking cool. And if you deep dive in it, you can have dishes that originated before America was America all the way through now. <laughs> When I'm listening to this and the passion that you have for it and how deep rooted it is in coming up in that cuisine, in that culture, I, I instantly would think, all right, cool. You've been in it for life. You've right. been cooking, you went right into the industry, all that. And then reading a little bit of kind of the questions I sent you, I was like, oh, you were a bus boy at Black Eyed Peas in Texas yeah. when you were 15. I was like, okay, cool. It started there and it kept going. But no, you like, went into mortgage and insurance. And I went, womp, womp, womp. Like, what, <laughs> what happened here? Tell us about that. And then uh, the transition, I think, is important because you talked about going to culinary school and getting on the grind and going out there trying to find a job, being a culinary student with big old air quotes. Talk yeah. about that because it seems unlikely hearing where you came from and how important food was at such an early age. Yeah, I mean, I pursued something different. Um, in school and I would, I mean, as a biology major. So for me, um, it was very different. You know, there wasn't, um, a time 20, 30 years ago for me to say that, Oh yeah, if I'm going to go be a professional cook, I'm actually going to be able to make money and pay for stuff even more. So being isolated, you know, here in Washington, thinking that Puerto Rican cuisine is something that you're going to be able to bring to the market as a professional chef. That wasn't even a thought because I knew it wasn't even a possibility. So, you know, I went a different path. I went to college and the normal shit. And then I got into mortgage insurance and financial services. This was, you know, right at the height of the market right before it crashed. Um, and I was doing really well. I was like 24, 25. I had a business in three states. You know, I had an office. I had everything. You know, I had everything and a house and a car, really nice suits. And I'd wear ties to work every day and I had, you know, everything. You can, you can think of it. And then the market crashed and I, it was literally that fast where I was taking, you know, taking the keys to my house, turning it back to the bank, turning the keys to car, turning it back to the bank, uh, you know, getting rid of all the fancy clothes, getting rid of all the stuff, getting rid of the house, you know, moving into a little studio apartment and starting from scratch, you know, and, and one of the things that I did at that point is like, I need to get in something that if this shit happens again, at least I can figure out a way to like, if I'm on the streets, at least I can make some baller top ramen for myself, right? So that's why I pref that's where I went towards cooking. Um, I was cooking in my apartment, um, and I was just doing it. It was right at the height also of people doing food blogs. <laughs> so I was putting up posts of the bullshit that I was making at home, which was, I look back at it now, you know, 10, 12 years ago, it was absolute trash. And I started to get people that liked it and I didn't understand why. And people were going like, man, that's really cool. And that's awesome that you did that. And yeah, I keep posting. So I went on a tear and 
I started posting a lot. I started posting like two or three times a day and I was making breakfast, lunch, and dinner just at my apartment and putting stuff online. And then I started getting invited to restaurants, you know, because people were going, hey, you know, you look like you go out to eat every once in a while. Why don't you come to our restaurant? So I was getting like free meals. <laughs> it's crazy. And I kind of kept that going. And then I had a friend reach out to me and he goes like, hey, that's cool and all, but you know, what's the next step for that? Or what are you going to do? And I was, you know, I, I was like, I don't know. And um, they're like, why don't you go get a job at a restaurant? And so I took my resume and I, I started, you know, knocking doors at restaurants and I went to like the top restaurants in Seattle at the time. And um, I went in and I was trying to meet whoever I needed to meet, which I wasn't sure at the time who that would be, but I'd be like, Hey, can I talk to chef? I want to work my way up in the kitchen and start as a dishwasher. And nobody got, nobody contacted me back at all. Like 0%. I, I, I talked to seven different chefs in the city. Uh, nobody got back to me the second time. I think they thought I was like bullshitting them. Um, additionally, like I was going to these interviews or these times to talk to people. And the only thing I knew is like, you dress nice and go to an interview. And I was going in full on suits to go apply for a dishwasher position. So it was really, <laughs> I think they were like, this is, this guy's insane. They got um, like some douche vibe off of you or something I, like this guy know, needs man. to go back to Wall Street. I have no idea. I, I don't know. Maybe, uh, maybe, uh, you know, if looking at it now, but um, I, I don't know. I mean, I was, I was legitimately excited of going like, I'm going to work in a restaurant. I will work my way up. I had, I still, you know, I have that same vibe in my head now where I'm like, Oh, I'll make it happen. I don't care. And, um, so I went and I, I, I wasn't getting anywhere with it. Like nobody hired me. And so I had another uh, friend of mine go, Hey, why don't you check out culinary school? So I did. Um, I got into a culinary school here in Seattle. And then I went to, in like the first week I went to my, um, like one of the chefs and I said, Hey, how do I get a job in a, in a restaurant and she took the resume I had she deleted it everything on it and just wrote culinary student and so the next day I went to this restaurant and that was sea star the first one that was in uh, Bellevue and I took him in and I said hey I'm looking for a job you know and I had my culinary school student <laughs> thing on because I just left right after school and I said hey I'm looking for a job I don't know if you guys need anything but if you need like a dishwasher you need like a prep cook and they were like when can you start I'm like well tomorrow if you need me to they're like all right 6 a.m <laughs> and it was just that quickly um you know and i'm looking back at it i was like agonizing over nobody calling me back nobody emailing me back you know not being taken seriously and all of a sudden i'm like wearing a culinary school jacket in a restaurant and it was that easy to just show up the next morning you know at a restaurant and be there um yeah, the, the dynamic is curious when i'm listening to you because i, I mean first thinking about the industry we're so inclusive that anybody and everybody can be a part of it. Yet also there's a little bit of judgment. We are kind of judgy about like, not being yeah. counterculture and this band of rebels, Island of Misfit Toys. So maybe yeah. you caught that vibe a little bit. And then on the, on the flip side, thinking about not being able to get a job at that point when today there's such turmoil when it comes to quote unquote labor issues, which I believe are culture issues manifesting they're, they're as labor shortages. Much, yep. Right. And saturation of restaurants and competition. And also a lot of other industries that now have taken on the persona of Island of Misfit Toils and Rebels and a place for people who don't fit into the status quo. So like there's competition outside of just the competition within the restaurants. Now, if you have a heartbeat, and a pulse 
you're probably getting hired right away versus three to four stages and a lot of the oh, yeah. dynamic that we came up in, which is totally. super fascinating. Now, now speaking of that, that kind of high level, you got in, you're in, you're on your path. And then I'm super fascinated. You worked for quite a clip at, you know, famed Alinea working with Grant Ackett's yep. and his team. Uh, way more interested, not in the level of food, which is, you know, world, world class. I'm really interested in the dynamic of the humans working there. It's intense. Yeah. There's huge crews. Uh, the turnover is high. Like the burnout is high. The accolades are deserved and high. Talk about yep. just what it was like being a human in that space, the team dynamic there. Um, that was the first time I went to a restaurant or pretty much anywhere professionally in my career where I didn't feel like an outcast. Um, I didn't feel like the weird one. And so the reason being is I was working directly with chef. Like, and I was working with directly with the other chefs of each restaurant. I wasn't like a chef de partie, you know, so I wasn't lost in the mix. I wasn't just doing the day to day every day, you know, prep list. It's always the same. And did you get your 23 picks in? Did you get your, you know, whatever, did you get all your restrictions? And I wasn't doing that. Um, I, I was very much working on the creative side with chef, putting things together, everything from anything that was happening offsite all the way to things that were happening in future projects, menus that were happening next year, you know, dishes that we were holding onto that were being completed, you know, sourcing, ingredients from around the world, sourcing plates, and you name it, you, you name it. Um, any odds and ends thing or primary functional thing that was happening within the company, I was involved. And so on that side, it was a, it was a lifestyle. It wasn't a job. It was 24-7. There was times where, you know, chef would text me at two o'clock in the morning and I would, I would just be ready. I'd be like, yeah, let's do it, <laughs> you know? And we'd go back and forth for hours, you know, or he would G-chat me. And he'd see like, oh, you're, you're awake? And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm just working on this thing. You're doing that. And he's like, oh, okay. And then we'd hash out a bunch of shit to go back in the morning. <laughs> and we'd show up right at, you know, right at when we're getting in for the day and have all this like communication sorted out and projects sorted out. And it was, it was fucking cool because, it, you know, working there, there's no restrictions. <laughs> there's every resource available to you. There's no, oh, no, we can't do that. Oh, we have to wait. Oh, there's this. There's no speed bumps. It's just a fucking freeway and you're in a Bugatti and you're flying through people, you know? And so that was, that was a very unique experience. And seeing that is what I aspire towards now as a, a, a my own business. And those stages that I saw that they went through to get there completely understood. And it took some time. You know, so that's why I'm really patient with it in my business. I'm not looking to say I'm opening Disney 9 tomorrow. Right now, I'm just drawing patterns of Mickey Mouse on a piece of paper, you know, and, but I aspire to have those things for myself, for the restaurant, and then my employees to see that, hey, we have all of this because of this story before all of this happening. And there's an evolution of that. Anchor and North Star, I'm, I'm yeah. an all-in believer on that. The ability to have both is so important. Otherwise, we see it a lot. We spin off our axis if we don't have that grounded and that ability to be aspirational. And so love hearing that really developed you and kind of being able to get above the chum of the minutia of your 22 touches for your restrictions and all that. Like, yeah, that's, yeah. That, that, can, that, can, that can turn you up 
which like leads us right into where we always like to play a little fun little game to geek out. You are a self-proclaimed cookbook hoarder, so no better name for our game of best served on icebreaker game than cookbook hoarder. I want you to give us somebody who is a, a student of the game of cookbooks, some of the cookbooks that, uh, that you would recommend in certain categories so people listening can say, yep, I'm into that. I need to get a hand, my hands on that yep. book. I mentioned the French Laundry Cookbook completely changed my yeah, life for in sure. culinary school because I was like, I didn't even know that shit was possible. You started a culinary school. For a culinary student, what's that book that you think can just really set the tone for the industry they're about to get into for a culinary it, student? I ended up having a cookbook. Um, There's a cookbook library at the culinary school I went to. One of the weirdest moments of it was walking through it and going down like a second aisle and seeing this little, you know, 16 by nine looking format book sticking out and it was sticking out more than the other ones. And I was like, what the fuck is that? And I pulled it out and it was the Alinea book. And that was the first one where I was like, holy shit. Cause I had no idea what I was looking at, <laughs> you know? And I'm like, what is this? You know, and looking at all the pictures and you see a picture of a snail that's edible and it's a, you know, mozzarella balloon and all this other crazy stuff. And I was like, what is it? Like, what? You know, and when you're thinking about food your way, you know, and, and anybody's way, it's like, well, that's just what I eat for breakfast, lunch, dinner, or like whatever. But this was like a performance piece. You know, it was different. It was art. It was something that I'd, I'd never seen anything like it. And that started my deep dive into going back and seeing like where all the you know, origin story of Alinea was, and Chef Ackett's and, you know, getting into, okay, cool. I saw Alinea book before I saw the French Laundry book. And then I went to French Laundry book and I started understanding what he did. And I read the story about when, you know, Thomas Keller sent Grant Ackett's to friend Andrea and El Bully, and then I started finding out about El Bully, and you know it's doing this whole fucking deep dive on everybody and all of the El Bully's things turned into like oh now they're closed and then here's all these other restaurants you're inspired by us so then you're looking at Can Roca and Muguritz and you know all these crazy stories and people and the evolution of cuisine and how it's gone and then people going well now you know it's here's modern cuisine and you know people are using hydrocolloids and that shit's done and I'm like no it's not <laughs> you know and it's just gone in a different way it goes back to when people were looking at like, sous vide and putting the temperature of what they cooked at that thing on a menu. And now everybody just does it. Nobody talks about it anymore because it's just normal. Um, but it's those quick jumps that happen from just looking at that one book, which is a linear book. And then a couple of years later, being able to work there was surreal, you know, and sitting at chef's desk and I'm like, you look to the left and there was all every fucking award you can ever think of winning. Uh, he has it. They have it, you know, and so when you look at that top level, at the top level that I've, I've ever seen and then meeting all of those other chefs in between and on top, you know, with him, I've met all this, I've met all the chefs he's met, you know, I've met Thomas Keller, you know, and Doni and all these crazy, the Canroca brothers, all these guys. And so when you see all of these people, you're like, how do I fucking fit into that? You know, how do we create something? How do we make something that stands on that level slowly and over time? That all came from the Alinea book. It's crazy. What a fucking rabbit hole. All right, so culinary students listening, <laughs> the moral of the story is find something unbelievable and go down that rabbit hole. Don't yep. get stuck in your on cooking or whatever curriculum book is because that's not going to be what leads you to that. Let's talk about a couple people. First, yeah. I want to talk about somebody who you do not work with currently outside of your restaurant. Then we like to talk about somebody inside the restaurant. So who's somebody outside your restaurant anywhere in the country, anywhere in the world, or maybe right in your backyard that you want to acknowledge doing some stuff that you really appreciate? 
Yeah, uh, I'd say my buddy Scott Heimendinger. Um, he's we've known each other for a while now, and he was the technical director over at Modernist Cuisine. Uh, and so anything that had to do with photo or video over, I don't know, I think eight years, I think it was, um, that was the guy, uh, you know, and that was the guy that any, any sort of new technology that was being presented at that level, at that place for modern cuisine, he was in charge of, um, and we're really good friends. And so for me, I think he's, he's really inspiring because the, the way that he does his approach to creating, you know, a robot that... <laughs> can hold a camera that can shoot these really unique shots in food that nobody else is even thinking of. Um, it creates a different point of view of how to think about food. You know, so if you're going like, okay, we're gonna get this thing on a micron level and all the way zoomed in to show you these things, he's producing that. And he just left them uh, to pursue his own venture. And he's been working with Anova when they're gonna put out that smart oven uh, and he, you know, directed the technology on that whole thing. So, you know, when that thing comes out, it's like really fucking cool because at a level now you have a smart oven for home users and it's roughly based on like the technology of combi ovens, but really easy to use for residential people. So that'll be the first time actual people have like a countertop model of something combi oven with precision that they'll be able to use. And it's because of him, you know, it's a fucking amazing. Um, so when I look at stuff, I mean, that's, that's one of the people that I look at that I don't work with, um, that is really inspiring. So uh, I'm interested in this. You mentioned you have a biology background. You went into mm -hmm. high end R and D you have somebody like Scott and the whole team of modernist cuisine that are, mm -hmm. it, it, it's crazy. They're almost not cooks, right? But they are, there's, there's an interesting mashup there. There also sometimes is a little bit of, of a divide of like feeling like, you're in the grind of being a grunt in the kitchen and you're like, I don't even understand that. It's so distant. Maybe connect those dots for us a little bit as it's, it's more opportunity. Mean, yeah. They have a crew. I mean, they have a crew that's on the research side for a lot of their stuff and they have a crew that's actually cooks. Um, and so you have like Francisco Medigoya that heads up the kitchen there. Uh, and he was a former pastry chef uh, on his own. Uh, he was a teacher at the Colonial Institute of America. He's got a bunch of really good cookbooks, uh, frozen desserts, modern cafe, and there's another one that I'm forgetting off the top of my head. But those, those books are, if you want like the standards of pastry put out to you in a book, that's the ones you look for. He's the guy that runs the kitchen there. Um, and they're putting together, I think, the pizza book now. Uh, they just finished the bread book. And there's a few other ones they have. And so when they're coming at it at that level, it's again, it's kind of like almost like an alinea where there's all the resources available to you. There's no stopping. Uh, and so that's why it's a really cool thing. Um, and the checks and balances within their whole company, it's, it's cool to see because they can do anything they want. Um, and so on that idea of food, it's always something where I'm looking at on the research side. That's the research side that I'm looking at. On the restaurant side, then I'm looking at those like ultra high tier restaurants going like, holy shit, how do we get there? You know, and that's kind of a thing for both sides. I've recently over the past couple months have been upgrading some of our equipment here at the restaurant. And you know, it's a Arco Beleno pasta extruder, it's a Paco jet, you know, um, you know, our thermal mix gets a lot of work, but these are things that a lot of ultra high end restaurants have, um, that I was used to using on a level, but now I'm actually able to afford them and put them in my restaurant with baby steps. Um, and it's, it's fucking cool. Cause then I'm like, I can show my employees and be like, Hey, check this shit out. You know, and they can see it and they're like, Oh my God, <laughs> you know, and it inspires them to think of different things and different ideas. And then I can, 
be hands off and they can just create. Yeah. Speaking of inspired people on, on your team, who is that? Let's talk, let's deep dive on, on somebody specifically. Yeah. And then we always like to take the opportunity to just, just shout out the people that are in the trenches with you, like really making yeah. it happen. Cause we know it takes a village. So but who's that one person for you? On, on the cook side, I mean, there's two people. On the cook side, uh, it's Paul. Uh, and Paul came to us, you know, a couple years ago, we had the Alinea team out here in Seattle. We did a pop-up and a couple people told me, hey, you know, there's this kid, he wants to come work with you. And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> Man, you know, not, I don't need a stash today. I don't want to have the unknown right now because, you know, the team's here from Chicago and they're going to be running 300 miles an hour. So let's not. Um, and so, you know, a couple more people contacted me and I was like, okay, 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 fine. Let's just get him in here and see if he'll work and he'll be fine. I mean, instant, like he's a natural, uh, within a couple minutes, we all knew this, this guy was going to be a big deal and he was 19 at the time. Um, and so he got in and they had him on a station for that dinner, <laughs> you know, and he was working with the chefs, uh, for the dinner. And then like a month later he left, um, Seattle to then go work for them. Uh, he worked for them for almost a year, and then he went down to Barago in Chile, um, which is also a fucking amazing restaurant. And then uh, he, you know, emailed me, and he was like, hey, man, like, uh, I got to offer a job, but I don't know if I want to take it, uh, paid job down there. He, and I was like, well, why don't you just come move back up here and work with me, and you can be an R&D guy. And so, yeah, he came, you know, and he's here now. And so um, he's, he's, a, he's a natural, man. He's, he's a natural. And, you know, his mom's a chef, and he's been – in that whole world and it's French family. They're very like proud of their food. They're proud of their culture. They're proud of their cuisine. Um, and he takes it really seriously. And it's not like something that you have to tell him to do. He'll just run and do it, you know, tell him to be creative and Hey, here's, you know, we have a 12 course tasting menu tonight. Um, can you take the whole thing, you know, or can you take like five spots in it? Can you take like eight spots in it? Can you take 10 spots? And he's like, yeah, sure. You know, just, and he'll, work around and you know produce it and plates it up and it's and, and it's it's at such a high level naturally that I'm like holy shit you know um but I don't hold him in a regard of man this guy's gonna work for me forever and I tell him all the time I'm like the next step you're sh you should be taking and looking at is to having your own restaurant you know and so basically what I'm having him do now is he's hiring his own team um he's doing his first interviews that he's ever done in his life next week and so I'm giving him the reins of the tasting menus uh, here, obviously with like me looking over it, but not being so hands-on. So he's going to have two to three people, you know, that he's managing full-time that can help produce a lot of our stuff at night. And then I'll just be coming in and, you know, working with him and making sure he's supported. And then at that level, he's running a restaurant, you know, and he's in his own thing and he can have that next step and, you know, make mistakes on my dime. Sure. But that's not hopefully going to happen. Uh, but, thrive with a busy restaurant that we are and so that way he can actually understand what that is what it takes and how to move it forward you know and so he's, he's just amazing investing in people is for sure what i hear that is yeah. such a, a challenge for us when you're in that minutia as i call it when you're grinding when you're just barely getting out the plates that you need to get out when there's yeah. labor shortages all these dynamics at play how are you and why is it so important for you to rise above that and say, I have to invest in people, the most important asset that I have, why and who, it's what matters when the business side is like, 
control your resources. Yeah. Don't let them get away. Keep them in a box. No, keep I, it- that's a, t- that's a shitty approach. You know what I mean? Like it, it's a, just a shitty approach. It's, I, I, you know, I don't own anyone. Um, I think a lot of times restaurants feel like they own their employees just because they pay them like shit. Uh, I feel like a lot of chefs have so much ego that they have 10, 15, 20 people in their kitchen and they think they're like a fucking symphony, you know, Corey, you know, what are the, I can't think of the whole top of my head, but just like the guy standing in front of everybody with the little wand telling everybody what to do. And they're not necessarily doing anything. They're just there. The composer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's, it's, it's something like that where it feels that way. A lot of restaurants that I've been in, um, not working, but I've visited at a really high level. The chef kind of takes that on and I'm like, this is garbage. You know, you have the composer that just comes in. You don't really see him doing anything. You don't really see him there. The difference between those restaurants and like Alinea is you see Chef Ackett's there. (laughs) He's on the line. He's cutting shit. He's like prepping. He's cooking. If someone's down on the line or something else like that, or they're short, I mean, he's like working saute and fucking, I mean, it's crazy. And so I've seen that happen, you know, with another person that's on our staff, Ingrid, um, who's our director of operations, also my girlfriend. Um, we've been working with this for like two and two and a half years now. And she's worked with me since it was in my apartment and it was two seats at a time, you know, all the way to now we have a full restaurant. Um, and so, you know, for her, it's very different because that's, that was, she was my first employee, you know, she's my first paid employee. And so that's like a panic attack moment. We were like, Oh fuck, I got to pay these people. You know, and it was me when I started out for myself. I was the dishwasher. I was the front of house. I was the back of house. I was everything. I just started, it was a one-man show. You know, and then adding on people going like, well, what am I going to do to keep these people around? And how am I going to keep them excited to keep coming here? But also, how can I pay them more than what they're getting anywhere else so they also have that perk? We don't start our employees at minimum wage. We start them at $18 an hour. You know, our fucking uh, dishwasher makes almost $20 an hour. That's unheard of, you know, especially for such a small business. I'm not a hotel. I don't have other sources of income that come in here. We don't have investors. I don't have anybody telling me how or what to do, what or when. I'm literally taking that on and going like, how the fuck can I figure out a way to pay my employees more, make sure they're getting what they need. In April, we start benefits and I have five employees, (laughs) you know, and looking at that on that level, the way that we're growing pretty much like by the end of this year, we could probably have 10 employees. That's pretty fucking rad, but I'm also going, okay, cool. So Paul's been here for his first six months. He's getting a raise. Ingrid just got a raise. I'm looking at anybody else in the opportunity and in the fold where I can go, Oh, awesome. Our dishwasher, Missy, we just had a review with her. Yeah, she'll get a raise, you know, and anyone else that's kind of in the mix, if they've been here for longer than three to six months, then, you know, they deserve that too. And we're going to keep on going because the business is doing well. If the business is doing well, you guys are going to do well. I'm not just going to sit there and go, well, I need to mind my P's and Q's. And uh, yeah, I'm going to go on vacation and take like three months off so I can, you know, get back in my head of what I need. It's not, that's not the time for that. Derek, fuck, man. I absolutely love everything you're saying. I'm going to come work for you, man. I'm in. Like, it's just, it's just you, it's your responsibility as a leader to find a way to empower your people, inclusive of them being able to have a livable wage so that they can be the best, the best for you. Yeah. I think, I think of the story of like the, 
and people are stuck in this rut. The CFO talking to the CEO, the CFO says, what if we spend all this money on training and, and allocating resources, time and energy on our people and they leave? And the CEO says, what if we don't and they stay, right? Yeah. And we're so stuck in so much of just keeping people who are underutilized, undervalued, undermotivated, and we wonder why they don't deliver. And then we wonder why our businesses fail. So I love I mean, the thinking. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, all it's, in. I looked at, I look at a lot of like tech because we're here in Seattle and I've seen a lot of companies grow from nothing. You know, back in the 80s, you know, Microsoft had a different way of treating their employees. And there was kind of like they were all replaceable, you know, and they were going after uh, other cultures and trying to get them in on H1B visas so they wouldn't have to pay a lot of their employees that were here on a stateside level more. You know, so they're kind of like working a way to like pay their people like shit. And it didn't work in their favor. You know, Microsoft in the 80s, it was okay. Like nobody was really excited to be there. It was this tech company. It was the thing that was growing, but they flipped a switch. I mean, I would say, I would say probably like over the last like 10 years, they flipped the switch and they started investing in their employees. They started investing more into an idea of what Microsoft could be. And it didn't necessarily have to be just one thing. It could be anything. And to see that change now, you know, Microsoft's massive and they've grown and they're video games and they're doing all this crazy shit. And I've seen all their, I have a lot of their employees that come in and they're like, this is such a different vibe, but it feels better. It feels better. They've like invested in us and we've been able to grow exponentially, you know, a hundred times over since those times where it was the CEO, the CFO, CTO, all getting together going like, Hey guys, we got to trim out these 10 fucking thousand employees. Cause like we need to make sure our stockholders are happy. They don't do that anymore. They're like, we need to keep pushing forward with the employees that we have. We need to make sure they're happy because if they're happy, we're going to net positive a hundred times over. So I look at that at my level and I go, okay, cool. If I'm a restaurant and my business, I have a business background, mortgage insurance, and financial services. I can understand that shit on a business level. I understand how to throw that down on a spreadsheet. I understand how to market myself and the restaurant and put it all out there as a business rather than just going and thinking like a restaurant. The, re the second that you think your restaurant is a community center, right for what's going on, or fits in within a trend, you're fucking dead. You're fucking dead. You are fucking dead. The only way that you can think of your restaurant is as a fucking business. And if you don't think of it that way, you shouldn't be in business. So everything comes into play with that. It's the way you treat your employees. It's the way you pay your employees. It's the way that you take care of your guests when they come in. If you're thinking your guests you know, don't deserve a little bit of an extra bump here and there with some stuff, then you know what? Open a franchise, go get a subway, you know, see the little hamster wheel in the subway go and just be happy with that. But do not run a restaurant. Don't get one that you actually want to make a difference with. You know, if you want to spend your money on a restaurant, there's two things you can do. Go out in the alleyway, get a fucking garbage can, light on a fire and throw your money in or do it the right way. And that's the only option. Yeah, when I hear you talking, there's, there's two fronts that we're fighting right now and have been fighting and will always be fighting. You're fighting the business model of the restaurant, which is totally broken, yep. arcane, and hasn't changed in over half a century. There's a lot. Whole other podcast, and maybe we should have this <laughs> podcast, you and I, about it. And you're also fighting culture. When I, when I hear you talking about tech, it makes me think of the thing you hear. It's like, oh, they're the Google or the Facebook of this industry. And they're saying two things. They're saying innovation and they're saying culture. And what I want is in the future for us to be the industry that has that profound culture where people are saying, oh, that's the, 
ado of fucking software. That's the ado of, of whatever industry because we are the ones that have the culture defined to the level where people are wanting it, needing it, craving it from inside and outside. But that's not the case anymore. We're the industry right now that's the easiest to go, fuck it, I'm out. And that's yeah. what I hear you saying. And that's what I think we need. And man, what, is, what a big shift in paradigm has to happen for that. And I think there's the opportunity, but there's going to be a lot of attrition and pain to get to that point, sure. to your point. Yeah, I mean, you see these big restaurant groups, and I say big restaurant groups when, you know, you have a, a local restaurant tour, and this happens in every city, and they open up one restaurant, it's a hit, and then their investors go, hey, man, what else should we do? I feel like if we open up something else, we can do something, that second one hits, the third one hits, the fourth one hits, before you know it, they have 20 restaurants, and then they become non-essential to a generation, because that took them seven to 20 years to be relevant, now that generation that they had is like in their 50s and they're not going out to eat as much and they're not big fans of theirs and maybe their kids that got taken to that restaurant don't really give a shit about that restaurant. So then you see these stories about, oh man, a chef just closed down three restaurants. Is this the end of the boom in Seattle or whatever else? And I'm like, wait a second. That guy had 20, 10, 20 years of success at a restaurant. They're going to be okay. The problem that I see when those articles come out is that nobody actually goes over to the employees that work there that were treated like, quote unquote, family. You know how many times people say, oh, we're a family, we're a family, we're a family. You're a family until the fucking place closes. And then the only one that's going to get benefits from that is the investor and the chef or anybody that's part on the business side, but everybody else is going to get shit on. You know what I mean? So it's like, I'm not going to feel sorry for anybody in those positions. The per person that's trying really, really hard to have like a mom and pa shop style that has the one restaurant that has to close because for whatever reason, everything kind of gets fucked for them. That's who I feel sorry about. It's truth, man. Whew. We got to put a pin in this thing, but damn, this is some important stuff. I hope everyone's listening. I know I am fired up. I'm sure they will be too. We always like to leave everyone with some words to live by something that take out in the world, take into our industry, make it a better place. I clearly fucking know which uh, position you stand in this. You say lead, follow, or get out of the way. You'd probably say get the fuck out of the yeah, way. Yeah. <laughs> my dad was in the army for 30 years. Uh, and so that was something he told me as like a little kid. And he was like, this is what we do. This is how it is. You know, in the army, this is it. You lead, follow, or get the fuck out of the way. And so that's kind of the thing that in my restaurant, and how we run it uh, on the inside and the outside, it's, it's very polarizing, um, especially here in the West Coast. It's, it's not something that people are used to. Um, you know, you can tell somebody very direct, hey, this is what I want, here's what I don't want. And they'll be like, but where's the puppies and rainbows that tell me that you're not mad at me or you're angry? And I'm like, it's not even that. It's, we have to make this happen like right now or we're, we're all fucked, you know, like we're dead. So having to be, it, again, like relaying another thing that happens in tech is like an early adopter of things. You know, the way that my businesses run, the way that we only sell tickets, we don't take walk-ins, we don't have a lot of things that other restaurants do. We don't have a fucking phone. <laughs> you can't call us. You know, that's very polarizing to people and we're a really early adopter of it, but I've seen it work at other restaurants, you know? And so I'm like, well, if we're going to do this and we got to do it like this, we got to be consistent with it. So we're going to lead that here in Seattle. We're gonna lead it and everybody else who's following guess what that's cool everybody else is not they're getting the fuck out of the way by closing so it's it's that easy to see it um it's not like we're doing the world's best crazy numbers and we're sold out every night we're not but 
numbers over a year and a month or a day over a day of last year comparatively to 60 days ago, 90 days ago, everything's growing and we're seeing more and more guests come in and they're accepting that as being the norm now. So on my side, I'm looking at other restaurants and I have people that, you know, contact me all the time. Hey, would you want to get a beer? And I'd love to, you know, get your thoughts and whatever. I was like, well, I don't have time for that. And two, that's restaurant consulting. So if you want to pay me, I'm more than happy to tell you. But three, I also don't have time for it. You know, but however, I've put enough clues out there <laughs> and there's enough restaurants that are doing things like I'm doing that maybe making a major shift is where you start to lead yourself and then you figure out a system and you push people out of your way. Eric Rivera, thank you for the leadership. Great energy, great conversation. Truly appreciate you being on the show. Awesome. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate it. And yeah, if anybody, you know, needs anything or has questions, you know, feel free to send them our way and your way and all that good stuff. And I appreciate your time. Cheers. And we're back talking with Paul Foucher, who is originally from Paris, France, moved to the States when he was 11 years old. And we talk a little bit about the dynamic in the kitchen with Eric Rivera and what he's planning with Trey French. Tell us about your first job in the industry. My mom's a chef. My whole family is pretty interested in food, so it's always been part of my life especially growing up in France, obviously is known for food. And I kind of hopped around different jobs that I wanted to do and kind of realized that the whole thing that interests me is just eating and cooking. So I decided to get into that. Uh, first job was in uh, Bellevue, a restaurant called 99 Park, which is closed now. The chef there is uh, Quentin Stewart, and uh, his sous chef at the time was uh, Roger Harper. They kind of just took me under their wing. I was uh, 17 and kind of taught me what it means to cook in a restaurant instead of home cooking and just kind of mentored me to where I am now. Yeah, those early mentors are super important. Talk to us a little bit about what it's like working with Eric, being in that dynamic kitchen. My relationship with Eric is kind of, it's like, it's a mentor relationship, definitely. We've known each other for two years now, but in a very different way than what I've experienced so far where he's less taking me like under his wing and taking me wherever he goes with him and more helping me figure out what I want to follow, what I'm interested in, pushing me to kind of figure it out on my own. So he's, he's like, he's the reason that I went out to Chicago, um, went out to Chile, came back. Um, we didn't start working with each other until like five months, five months ago. Um, but he's been, a mentor to me since before that in a less direct way than just working for him. Um, so I feel like having that background of knowing that he kind of, he cares about pushing the industry forward and what the next thing is rather than just doing the same thing that we've been doing. As far as working with him now, it's very, we kind of contrast each other where he's very extravagant. I think I'm a little more, reserve which i think balances out the ideas that we come up with for all our menus is he somebody that's pushing you you're rising to that challenge since i started working with him i've worked on a lot of things 20 different things every week that i haven't done before and not all of it works out um some of it does and that's great and then some of it just kind of i either eat it or it goes in the trash and next week i try it again and do it better uh, he's very much kind of giving me like a little playground to do whatever I want in 
Why do you think it's important to have the freedom to try new things, freedom to fail a little bit? Sometimes in this industry, it's really hard for us to even accept micro failures. You know, Edo is like, means this fire. It's kind of about seeing the, bitter, the bigger picture of what's possible out there instead of running it like a regular restaurant that's so focused on always, like never wasting a single penny. It's kind of, it limits what you can do where like he knows that if I work on a project that I've never worked on, it might not work out a waste of money for that day. But in the long run, it's going to turn into something that can bring attention to what we're doing and be something new that hasn't been done before. Give us a little teaser of, of what it is that you're working on for your concepts that you're looking to kind of bring into the market. So I'm kind of bringing like my, my experience growing up in France and kind of rejecting it a little bit when I moved to the U.S., just trying to be like everybody else and kind of rediscovering it when I was in Chicago. Really good friends that were from France kind of reintroduced me to all that culture that I kind of try to separate myself from. So I kind of want to bring that back into Addo with my own kind of experience, have it be a little satirical, but at the same time kind of playing into what makes French culture, French food, like what it is. <laughs> so it's going to be a series uh, called uh, Très French, which means like very in French. Some of it's going to be more, uh, more high-end, some of it's going to be more casual, just a specific thing that I remember really liking growing up there. Somebody's going to be more like wine oriented, cheese oriented. But overall, it's what I took away from living in France and having the heritage, how living in the U.S. has affected that. What's unique about the approach that you have is you're really crystallizing the why behind multiple things. You as a person, you as a chef, also reconciling and exploring your own personal cultural history of being Parisian as well as being an American and how those things intersect. I even like the name being Trey French. Paul, I love what you guys are up to. I love the relationship that you have. I even like the energy dynamic that you talked about. Very fire and ice plays really well, clearly. Thank you for talking with us. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thank you. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Best Served Podcast. Subscribe to our show and connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Tune in next week to discover more unsung hospitality heroes.